0: We, we have quite a topic uh, to cover today and next week and then for following weeks we'll be have similar connections to this. but uh, this is a big a big topic today. Uh, some of us may have heard of this topic for a while now. For some of us, it might be the first time we've ever heard of the topic. I, I really don't know. Um, but the, the topic is God's sovereignty over sin itself. And I, I really think this is one of those issues that people oftentimes, it's hard sometimes to know exactly what to say about it, so it can often get neglected or ignored. But I think Scripture teaches a whole lot about this issue, and I don't think we can ignore it. And in fact, I don't think we can make sense out of God's sovereignty if you don't understand that God is sovereign over not just the good in the world, but also over the evil. And we're going to say over and over again, God never sins. He is never touched by sin. He never uh, forces someone to sin against their will. God is the God is light in, in him. There is no darkness at all. God Uh, always hates sin. Considered by itself, it is always a hateful thing to God. So all that stuff is true. We're not changing any of that basic obvious doctrine. God does not tempt us to evil, nor does He tempt anyone else. He he Himself is not tempted by evil, uh, but each is enticed by their own desires, evil desires, and, and lured away. So none of that is changing, but I do think the Bible says a lot more than just those things about God's sovereignty over evil. And some of these verses, I have to tell you, Some of these we don't read every day, you know, they they don't necessarily crop up every day in our reading, and some of these verses are, frankly, staggering. If you haven't read them in a while, it's like, wow, it's amazing the clarity with which Scripture speaks on this issue. So without further ado, uh, Jerry, could you uh, pray for us? And then uh, we will try to cover this week and next week uh, this topic.
1: Yes, sir, love to. Gracious Father, as we come before You, we um, are so thrilled to be uh, under Your sovereign, providential right hand. And, Lord, that uh, to know that you are governing um, everything that goes on is um, so comforting. Um, It is such a blessing to live um, knowing you and serving you and loving you, um, knowing that you are uh, completely in control, all loving, all knowing, and all powerful. And today, Lord, I ask that you would help us as uh, we um, think through difficult um, doctrines, um, I think, and Lord, I pray too that um, it wouldn't just be things that we store in our head and believe um, in, our, in our minds, but that would creep down into our hearts and change the way we operate on a day-to-day basis. And I ask that it would be um, highly applicable because um, of just the truth um, that you have given us in Scripture and help us to uh, really apply these things well in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. Well, let's just go to one text here to start, and there's many more, I'm sure, to come. Turn with me just for a moment to Genesis chapter 20. And you may remember here, Abraham uh, has his wife Sarah. We're told Sarah was beautiful. Uh, Abraham is going to go stand before King Abimelech. And he's worried. Remember, King Abimelech is going to take his wife. He thinks he's going to have Abraham killed so he can take his wife from him. So Abraham says, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's come up with a story here. Let's say that, just say that you're my sister. Let's not imply that we're married. Let's not say that you're my wife. Let's make it very clear. We're, we're going to deceive him. We're going to be lying essentially to him. And uh, that was a bad idea. That was a bad idea. That was a, that was a bad idea. And uh, she is t- Sarah is taken into the royal harem, into the collection of the king's wives, But the king does not immediately sleep with her on the first night. And let's look at the story here, starting in verse 2, Genesis 20, verse 2. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. That's a scary dream right there when God says that to you. Verse 4, now Abimelech had not approached her. So he had not slept with her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did, not, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? And then listen, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. That's what he says. And God doesn't really disagree. This is the, this is the amazing thing. Verse 6 is the answer. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, that is an amazing text. Here's why. Number one, is, was King Abimelech's will being violated? Was, it, was he being forced to act against his will? No, he says, in the integrity of my heart, in my own uprightness, I did this. I did the right thing. I did not sleep with this woman. And God agrees with him. Yes, you are right. You did this in the integrity of your heart. And guess what? Guess who gave you the grace in your heart to want to do the right thing. It was I who kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. So here's the thing, God's, God says in the Proverbs, remember a king's heart is like a river in the hand of the Lord, and what does he do? He can turn it wherever he wills. If he wants to harden Pharaoh, he can harden Pharaoh. If he wants to keep Abimelech from committing adultery, he keeps Abimelech from committing adul- adultery. God is sovereign over what kings do. And if, he's, if he can stop a, a king from sinning by his own choice, or he can harden Pharaoh's heart, which leads to Pharaoh sinning, God is sovereign over both the good and the bad. He is, he is ultimately reigning over all of that. And if he's sovereign over kings, isn't he sovereign over everyone else? If he's sovereign over the greatest world rulers, certainly he's sovereign over all people. So just initial thoughts here, seeing him sovereign over both the good and the evil.
2: Papa? I have been so provoked by this this lesson, I, I have talked to both Mark and, and Jerry this week and uh, I go back to Deuteronomy 29:29 29, 29 because for me, uh, this verse kind of clears all this up. Um, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. Those are God's words. And I often, you know, really wonder because God mentions the mystery of his will often in in, um, Ephesians when he's given the um, uh, predestination and um, election and and so how does all this work and how does this work in this area? Well, number one, The reveal will of, law, of, of God, and, and I've got to thank Hank Bailey for this. It's in, it's in an appendix, but it's, uh, it's, it's uh, Arthur Pink, The Sovereignty of God. The, the reveal will of God is simply his word. What he said is, it says in his word. Now, we know, and this, uh, this is an example, and there are constant, constantly other examples where we violate his word all the time we sin, uh, does that impede God and His uh, um, sovereignty? Not at all. So he, the secret things belong to the Lord our God and, and Pink goes on to elaborate much in that area, but uh, the secret things is God is in the heavens. Like Jerry says, He does all that, that He desires to do. And he can he can speak. He knows what Abraham's up to here, uh, and he speaks to Abimelech, and Abimelech is obedient. And obedience is one of the one of the issues here too. And 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 the reveal will. Uh, we're not we're often disobedient. Does that impede God? Not at all. He's sovereign over sin or our sin. That doesn't give us an excuse,
1: right? Yeah, when we get to the application of that, we'll sure see this. This in no way um, is encouraging antinomianism where we'd go and sin thinking that God's going to uh, take care of it because of His sovereignty, but it does give us uh, such freedom and joy, um, I think, when we get to the application of it, but there's plenty more passages.
0: Right, right. So here's, here's, here's another way of sort of asking this question of what we're talking about today are there two wills in God? This is kind of a a way it's been talked about in church history, are there two wills in God? And some people actually say there's more than two, but but let's just stay simple, let's keep two, are there two wills in God? I I am convinced that the Bible teaches this, that there are two wills in God, and I think that you can demonstrate it actually maybe easier than you might think in in Scripture. So I'll I'll just give you an example here. 1 Thessalonians chapter four, I think it's verse six or seven says, this is the will of God for you, you ready? This is God's will for you, your sanctification. And then he gives an example, that you might abstain from sexual morality, etc. cetera. So God's will, his revealed will, his commanded will for us is that we should be sanctified. We should be holy. We should be obedient. We should not be sexually immoral. It says like the Gentiles who do not know God. So God's will is that we obey, right? That we obey his commands. That's God's will for us. But then we're also told things like this. Uh, Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things doesn't just mean the happy things or the good things, it also includes the challenging things and even the sinful things. So God's will in one sense is that we obey him, but then he also has a sovereign will, or what you call the secret will here, his his, his secret sovereign will. And included in the secret sovereign will is all that comes to pass. God ordains all whatsoever comes to pass. So you see here immediately that the Bible speaks of God's will in these two different ways. Jerry, thoughts about...
1: Well, I don't know if I have any thoughts, but I'd like to hear, what are your favorite ways of saying that? Because it sounds like there's a number of ways that you can
0: say it. What's the most... Oh way. man! I mean, yeah. The, the, like, like Fred's picked a good one, which is his revealed will and his his uh, his secret, secret, secret will. Well, um, what's tricky about that is some of his secret will has been revealed, <laughs> so it's a little it's a little tricky. So uh, one way to talk about it is is his uh, will of command, what God commands of us, his will of command, and then you have also his will of decree or his sovereign will, uh, and th- those two things are I think taught throughout the whole of Scripture. There's I don't know how many scores of passages that talk about these things, but those are the kinds of texts that we're we're looking at.
1: Yeah, Uh, and we've been to this text how many times, but uh, Joseph, can we turn to Joseph? Yeah. That is a great um, place, Joseph, uh, in Genesis 45, verse four. So Joseph says to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they come near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you have sold into Egypt. Didn't you love that? We might remember that when you were a little, Little guy or girl, uh, hearing that story is just so uh, heartwarming. Now, do you uh, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. See his forgiveness. His forgiveness is based on a great understanding that he has. For God sent me before you to preserve life, verse seven. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive. A year, uh, many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Did they do the wrong thing? Absolutely, they did the wrong thing. Knowingly, they sinned, they knew they sinned, they had to cover it up to their dad. And yet it was God who did it. Genesis 50:20, a few more pages over. Um, and you may remember this. We can kind of think of it: the Romans 8:28 of the Old Testament. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so I just think there's so much to apply here um, that it frees us to forgive people, but we'll get to that in a second when we go through some more of the verses.
2: Papa? Well, in this particular case, um, of course, that would be God's decree that um, he would be kept alive and so that it would save the Hebrew people through Joseph in, in Egypt, but God God decreed all that in spite of the brother's sin. So it, it, it's, 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 this is one of the classic, one of the better examples in all of scripture is, is uh, in uh, Genesis and the Joseph story, uh, but there are countless others and we'll cover some of those this, morning, this afternoon.
0: Yeah, let's turn to Isaiah 10. This one's maybe a little less familiar. Isaiah chapter 10, and as we've talked about in the past, uh, God, uh, remember Assyria comes and destroys the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, That really happens in 722 BC, and they threaten the southern kingdom in about 701 BC and almost take all the cities in the southern kingdom. They they take almost every city except Jerusalem, and uh, it's a massive uh, defeat for both the northern and southern tribe of Israel. and Look at the way God speaks about this in Isaiah 10. So, before I read the text, here's what you've got. From the human perspective, what Assyria did was evil. They attacked God's people, mercilessly killing people left and right because of their own selfishness and greed. Right? That's what Assyria did. They, they out of pure selfishness, egotism, pride, and greed. They attacked Israel, killing many people and sending many into exile and destroying one city after another and then bragging about it, how their gods are greater than the God of Israel and they're stronger than their army and all this. It's pure evil. Nothing but evil is going on here from Assyria. And yet did God have a purpose behind Assyria coming and disciplining Israel? From God's perspective, God was using them as a disciplinary tool to to, to chasten Israel, but from their perspective, They were actually trying to defeat Israel and sinning against Israel. How how do these two things fit together? Well, look at Isaiah 10, it's an amazing text, verse 5, woe. So God is speaking, woe to Assyria, and then God calls them the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Now, just pause there. So as Assyria is symbolically bringing down a staff to hit Israel over the head, right, to defeat Israel, what does God say? That staff in their hands is a channel for my disciplinary anger against Israel. It's a, the staff in their hands is God's fury. That's an amazing statement. Now look at verse six, against a godless nation, he's calling Israel godless right now. Against a godless nation, I send him. Yahweh is sending Assyria. And against the people of my wrath, I command him. Is God sovereign over the sin of Assyria right here? Yes, he's using it to take spoil and seize plunder, that's what they were doing to Israel, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he, that is Assyria, he does not so intend. And his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. Now, pause there. Do you hear this? In Assyria's mind, are they thinking, you know what? We're just humble servants of Yahweh we're just doing his bidding. We're just doing what he wants. Israel needs discipline. We're going to humbly obey Yahweh and give Israel some discipline. No, God is using them that way, but they have no idea God is using them that way. They think in their mind, it's in their heart to destroy. It's in their heart to cut off nations. Verse eight, for he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kaunal like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand is reached to the kingdoms of the idols, who, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols, as I have done to Samaria uh, and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, guess what he's going to do? He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So do you hear this? God ordains that Assyria act against Israel. And God uses their evil to punish Israel. And then God turns right around to Assyria and says, what you did was wrong. I'm going to punish you for that. <laughs> Do you have a category in your brain for this? I mean, this is, we need to have a category for this. God can ordain that evil events happen without himself committing evil deeds. God can ordain or predestine that a sinful action occur without himself sinning, being completely untouched by sin, having the human agent or the demonic agent being entirely responsible for their own wicked choice, which they made of their own volition. They made a real decision. But yet God was sovereign behind it, and God intended a great and good purpose for his glory. I mean, if we don't have this category, we're going to lose. I don't want to sound dramatic, but this is dramatic. If I don't have a category that God can ordain sin without sinning, then I'm going to lose the gospel. Because what is the gospel? The murder of Jesus for our sins, preordained by God. I mean, if there was anything that everyone agrees God preordained, it's the death of Jesus, right? I mean, even people who don't even believe in the sovereignty of God, totally, they say, well, clearly he planned Jesus' death. I mean, that's the whole Bible's about that. Okay, if you grant the fact that Jesus going to the cross was according to the predetermined plan of God, how did that event transpire? Judas did the greatest sin of all, betraying his, the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. Pontius Pilate tried to wash his hands of what he could not wash his hands of, had Jesus whipped and scourged and beaten and bloodied. Herod mocked Jesus, made nothing of him, wanted him to do a magic trick in front of him, mocked him with his, with his, with his other advisors, sent Jesus out, they put the purple cloak on him. They put the crown of thorns on the Roman soldiers, beat him to a bloody pulp. The Roman soldiers crucified him, nailing him to the cross. They hoisted them up as Israel renounces their own Messiah and says, crucify, crucify him. Those are the most wicked actions that ever happened. And what does Acts chapter four say? Surely in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, that'd be the Roman soldiers, and Israel, crucify, crucify him, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. If you don't believe God can be sovereign over human evil without himself sinning, you're going to start losing the gospel. Because at the center of the Christian faith is God predestined the most evil event that ever happened without himself being stained by sin, but using secondary causes like Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel to carry out God's plan, they were wholly responsible for their sin, and they acted willingly—not as robots in the sense that they were—they had no choice. They made real decisions, but God was behind those decisions, and He was foreordaining the very steps that they would take. And it, it, I know that it, this boggles our minds, and I cannot—I cannot, nor do I know anyone who can—fully explain how all what I just said makes sense but I believe the Bible teaches it. And I believe in the mind of God, it does harmonize. And if I can't fully parse out exactly how all that can be true, I must simply believe what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? God can't be tempted by evil. He tempts no one. He is light, there's no darkness in him. So no matter what we believe, God is unstained by all moral evil. Absolutely hates it. Number two, God predestined all the actions of the four groups that killed Jesus, which included the worst acts that ever happened. Number three, the individuals who killed Jesus were fully morally guilty and responsible for their deeds and shall be held accountable for all that they did unless they trusted in Christ for salvation, right? So how all that can be true, I don't know. I I can't fully explain that. But I know the Bible teaches those three things. And so I'm not gonna be the person who believes one of them and throws out two of them, or believes two of them and throws out one of them. I'm gonna have to believe every verse. And if I believe every verse, I'm gonna have to believe all three of those things. God is, I'm gonna say it again. God is untouched by evil. God ordains evil without sinning. The human or demonic agents who sin are fully culpable and responsible for their evil decisions. Those three things are taught in the Bible. And Mm -hmm. we can't fully explain how they fit together, but we must affirm that the Bible teaches them. Maybe while we're still in Isaiah,
1: it's just good to be reminded of this again, 55, eight and nine. And I think we have to run to these so often on this kind of thing. And Mark, thank you for explaining it so well, but also there is a mystery there. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so I hope we're not disturbed by this idea that God's doing things in a way that we can't completely understand. I think that. I hope that that's kind of um, encouraging to you, you know, God's way above us. And so his thinking and his ways are way above us. And so that's, um, I think we should just accept that and enjoy that. What we believe is the Bible because it's true, not because we can understand it. We don't believe only what we can fully um, understand. We believe it, we believe it all. Like the Trinity. I for sure,
0: like We, we the know the Bible teaches that there is only one God. No question, monotheism is taught from cover to cover of the Bible. The Lord our God is one, right? Even the demons know that there's one God, and they tremble. So monotheism is taught from cover to cover. It also, the Bible also clearly teaches three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, are fully and truly God. So we just have to believe, okay, in some sense, he is one in essence, he is three in person. How we fully explain that, no human being has the ability to fully explain. But that the Bible teaches those two things is unquestionable. unquestionable. One God, three eternal mm-hmm. persons.
2: It's all in, it's all in the word. I mean, you use the example of Assyria, of course, later on we know that God sent Nebuchadnezzar to Judah, right and and we know about the captivity, and we know from studying Daniel that Jeremiah said they're going to be there seventy years, and I'm going to give you some relief, and Cyrus comes along and defeats or defeats the Babylonians anyway, and they go back. so again, that's God's sovereignty over an, uh, he's punishing Judah by Nebuchadnezzar's invasion but again he's giving them optimism and hope because daniel was looking for that 70 years in fact he was praying to god it's been 70 years lord and the angel comes in swift flight and gives him the good news that they can go back home under cyrus so incredible
0: the whole book of habakkuk which we won't go there right now but you know that little short book of habakkuk was it three chapters and The whole wrestling match of Habakkuk is this. God tells Habakkuk, the prophet, I'm going to judge the wickedness of Israel by ordaining that a more wicked nation come and bring discipline against them." And Habakkuk says, Lord, how can you discipline our nation with a more evil nation? And God (laughs) says, "I'm I'm doing a work in your day that you would not understand if taught. Remember that verse? I'm doing a work in your day that you would not believe even if you were told. It's a very famous verse, but the context is this. I'm bringing a wicked nation to punish Israel. I'm ordaining the whole thing. And Habakkuk's knees shake together. He, he, he doesn't, he, he's about to faint when he hears this. He's, he's, he's deeply bothered in a sense, but at the end of the day, he says, though the fig tree does not blossom, no fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, yet I'm going to rejoice in the Lord no matter what. I'm going to trust in God no matter what. And it's in the context of Habakkuk that you get the idea that the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk's the one that says, The righteous shall live by faith. We're going to trust what God says, even if I cannot fully mm-hmm. and truly make sense out of all this. And that's the very verse that Paul will use to explain the doctrine yeah. of
1: justification by faith. No, that's really, really good. And if you're looking for one verse, when Mark was talking about the gospel, to come back to that one second, that Acts 2, you were in Acts 4, which is fantastic. Acts 2, yes. 23. In one verse, just says so much and And if you want to write this down or if you want to look at this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, okay, so there we have god's sovereignty in it, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. there we have what men did in it, and that's acts two um twenty three and I think there again in one verse um we see both both sides of things, but that God didn't lose control at all when Jesus was being crucified, yet it was done by evil men.
0: Yeah, I mean, just let me just repeat what you're saying there, Jerry. just emphasize what you're saying. In Acts 2.23, let me read it one more time because this is such a great text. It says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So, just the obvious. Like an afterthought,
1: no, I this is not
0: This is not God looking and seeing Jesus crucified and then trying to make the best out of it, right? Like, you meant it for evil, God used it for good which is oftentimes how Christians talk. Like this terrible thing happened, but I'm sure God will use it for good. Like, he walks into a mess and he's going to make the best out of cleaning up the mess. No, God planned the mess. That's what it says. So, so here, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And it says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of what? Lawless men. Lawless men. Were these individuals guilty and accountable for breaking the law as they murdered Jesus? Yes. And were they also fulfilling God's preordained plan that Jesus die? Yes. And if you're in Acts, look at chapter 3, the very next chapter, 318. And this is during Peter's sermon, one of Peter's sermons. Acts 318. Let me start in verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer he God thus fulfilled. So Jesus's death was for for uh, it was predicted by God ahead of time, and God fulfilled it. He made it come to pass. And then chapter four, uh, let me just reread. Fred, can you
2: read reread for us twenty seven and twenty eight one more time? Absolutely. Uh, find it here. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both. Uh, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Mm. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak out your speak your word with all boldness. So, Jerry, what would be some,
0: uh, and we, we can come back and forth here a little bit, but start with some practical takeaways oh, here. Yeah. What would be some dangers we could misunderstand, some practical takeaways? How do we apply something like this? Yeah, I don't know life?
1: why Mark's asking me about this, because he's the one that gave them to us. There's three of them, and they are really, really good. There's never an excuse for our own personal sin. No antinomianism. there. You cannot go there. Now, I know that I have. I have in, like, sin of omission, saying, ah, God's sovereign in election. He's gonna get those people. I don't really, I'm a little bit chicken about evangelism, so I'm not really, ah, I think he'll take care of that. Somebody somebody else will get them. whatever. Will they, if God has them their name written in the book of life before the beginning of time? Certainly, they're gonna become a believer whether I'm obedient or not, but that gives me no excuse. Chronic, I thought of you. We talk about you when we talk about evangelism 100% of the time, and what Josh did With Sam and Carrie was so neat to me in that Josh could have, and he said, man, when I'm going to physically train somebody, the very first time I meet him, I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to share the gospel because it's not going to be any easier the second time. I'm going to do that right up the front. He does it for Sam. He buys Sam a Bible. Did God um, ordain Sam to be a believer before the beginning of time? Absolutely. His name was written in the Lamb's book of life. He was chosen before the beginning of time. Did God use Josh? Absolutely, he did. Because Josh didn't just say, ah, God'll get Sam if he's gonna get Sam. I don't really need to worry about that. Josh took the blow by the horns. I'm gonna evangelize. Sure enough, Sam and Carrie come to love and know the Lord Jesus. It is a beautiful thing how that works. And so never, ever, ever, we would be so saddened if anybody ever heard us say this gives any excuse for sin.
2: Yeah, his, oh, Papa, go ahead. Well, I just, I, it's the famous Spurgeon story. We've told it over and over again, but when, when uh, talking about election and Spurgeon said, look, if God were to paint a yellow stripe down the back of, of, of the elect, I was just simply running around London pulling up shirt tails. Instead, I just preached the gospel, which is what Josh is doing. Not right. not wondering about where they are, but this is the gospel, and here you go. And I, I just want to add to the story. So
0: now that we we can only see things from our perspective, looking back, God can see it looking forward. We only know things after the fact, but after the fact we look back and we see, yes, God had written Sam and Carrie's name in the book of life before the foundation of the world. He had also written Josh's evangelism to him in the book of life before So God ordains see. the ends, which is conversion. He in also the ordains the means, which is each of us individually being used or corporately being used to reach people with the gospel. So if we don't share the gospel, people won't get saved because God ordains the means as well as the ends. And so if we just go, hey, God's gonna save, he's gonna save, then God's gonna save less people than he would have saved had we been more active in evangelism, how can I say that? Because you have not, because you ask not. And God, if God can ordain the means, he can also ordain the ends to separate those things. This is what people do, they separate means from ends. Like if God wants me to have food in my stomach today, I'll have food whether I eat or not. Well, then you're going to be pretty hungry tonight. I think God's going to ordain an empty stomach if that's the way you're going to think about it. If God ordains for you to have food in your stomach tonight, the the normal way He does that is not by a miracle where, boom, there's food in your stomach. Wow, God almost never works outside of means by just sheer miracle. I mean, today that's very rare. How does God normally put food in your stomach? He gets someone to prepare it. Maybe you, maybe the drive through, whatever you're doing, right? Someone in your family cooks for you. You get the meal and you choose to put it up to your mouth and chew it and swallow it. That's how you get food into your stomach. God gets to ends through means and the means are not less important than ends. And so evangelism is a non-negotiable necessary part of people coming to Christ and I still believe in the sovereign election of God because God uses the means to bring about the ends. And so it's not as though God is just sort of magically doing things, he's working through his people, through his word, through, through teaching, through Bible studies, and he's bringing about th- those righteous ends through, through those or- ordained means. Those uh, who
1: believe that should be the best evangelists. We should be absolute. more about missions than, than anybody.
2: Papa? I, I like the way Pink says this, God's purpose is immutable and must come to pass, notwithstanding the creature's insubordination. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's good. Read that one more time for us. God's purpose, and this is his decree, is immutable and must come to pass, notwithstanding the creature's insubordination. Right, mm-hmm. God's ultimate will is always going to come that's to right. pass. There's that's no right. There's no question about that. Yeah. And that that just opens the door for me. I mean, I just, suddenly I can see, said the blind man. And yeah. just, if I use this as an excuse, let's just say with evangelism, not only
0: is it just sinful, it's it's evil, it's wrong to do that. But, but think about this. It's like saying uh, God is inviting you to have the greatest sanctified fun imaginable. Mm-hmm. I've heard one quote, famous Christian quote, uh, there's no greater joy than that of saving souls. God doesn't just command us to do this. He is inviting us into the most sanctified enjoyment you can possibly imagine. To be personally used by God to affect someone's eternal salvation and to see them grow in godliness in part through God using you to do that? How could you not want in on that? Like, that's like, it's like asking my kids, do you want free ice cream tonight? They're like, uh... I don't know. No, of course, it's like it's like a banqueting hall of joy. And God's saying, you, you can be in on this. You can be a part of this. You can mm-hmm. be used for eternal results that will echo into eternity and never go away. I mean, that's the joy and the purpose that God's opening for us. And to say, well, if God's sovereign, I'm not going to be a part of that makes no sense at all.
1: Yeah. So no anti no man. Number two, God allows us, this allows us you forget what's behind. Please turn to Philippians 3. Yes. Too good to miss out on. Oh, I wish we had Steve Krause up here right now <laughs> to talk to us about Philippians 3. This is his passage. I've learned so much from him here. Um, it doesn't. It allows us to forget what's behind and press on toward what's ahead. Philippians 3, 12 to 16. Not that I have already obtained all this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining forward to what's ahead. I press on toward the goal to the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think in this way, and if if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained, anything, Papa, from from that thought or mark?
2: Well, this is all this is all Romans eight to me. I mean, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So don't meddle around with. I mean, we we are sinners, we have sinned, but God has forgiven us. We've been redeemed, and now let's press on towards the higher goal of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. I'm really thankful you brought Romans 8 into that just because
1: God is so, wow, for a number of reasons. But that is just so good and so true because who of us doesn't go back and say, oh, so many regrets, right? And we are to learn from those things, but don't let Satan pummel you with condemnation. Don't let it happen, right? God is sovereign in using that for good, our own sin and the sin of others that we're gonna get to in a second. But the Lord has freed you from that, right? And there's no condemnation um, in that, and those next 38 verses are really a commentary on how there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thanks, Papa, that's great.
2: Well, you know, Josh, Grouse is in here, you know, in the counseling room, how many how many people are sitting there agonizing over... Past failures, Past sins, yeah. past failures, whatever. Move on. Move on. Yep. And I think that's what uh, Paul's saying in Philippians. Yeah, forget what's behind. Hey, and listen, the good and the bad. The
1: good things, don't camp on the thought, I had the guy that I've talked about a hundred times, that was so fixed on the thought that he was a deacon in 1989. That's what he kept coming back to. His life was just laced with sin that finally killed him. And he would always say, yeah, but I was a deacon in 1989. Mm. Don't camp on the good that happened in the past or the bad that happened in the past.
2: The good, the bad, or the ugly.
1: Or the ugly. Move <laughs> ahead. Right? Good night, we can't do anything about those things. Don't cry over spilled milk, something like that, don't. That's just, there's no condemnation there. Or to say to go back into camp on the good days, move forward. That's what we have to, I think that's common sense, but it's certainly biblical.
0: That's very good. If you turn to the right to First Timothy 1, just a few books to your right, First Timothy chapter 1. And before I read that, this is a little bit off point, but I just, I, it's from an earlier point. I just want to quote this from Jonathan Edwards. Uh, this makes me smile because Edwards says things that are hard to fully understand, but th- this, this, was, this was comprehensible and, and really good. So this, on God's sovereignty and our responsibility, here's Edwards. He says this, thus God decrees rain in drought. So this is God's sovereignty. He decrees rain in drought because he decrees the earnest prayers of his people. Or thus, he decrees the prayers of his people because he decrees rain. When God decrees to give the blessing of rain, he decrees the prayers of his people, and when he decrees the prayers of his people for rain, he very commonly decrees rain, and thereby there is a harmony between these two decrees of rain and the prayers of God's people. Thus also, when he decrees diligence and industry, he often decrees riches and prosperity. When he decrees prudence, he often decrees success. When he decrees strivings, then he often decrees the obtaining of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, when someone is really bothered that they're not saved, and they're really pursuing, trying to get some kind of clarity. God, show me your truth. When he, dec- when he decrees that someone is is, is in consternation about their, their state of salvation, God normally decrees that as the way to salvation. So th- that's the way that works. And he goes on and on, but eventually he says, when God decrees um, conformity to his son, he decrees calling. And when He decrees calling, He decrees justification. When He decrees justification, he, he decrees everlasting glorification. But God, again, works through means. But look at Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy 1. This goes back to the, kind of the idea of forgetting what's behind, not getting uh, uh, caught up in our past failure. Just read a few verses, verse one, or verse 12, 1 Timothy 1:12. 1, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What does Paul do? Now, just stop there. Paul could have been caught in agonizing guilt and failure for the rest of his life. He was involved in the murder of Christians. He blasphemed Jesus. His job was to destroy the followers of Jesus right? He was advancing amongst many of his contemporaries and so jealous for Judaism. In Galatians, it says, he was, his full-time job was destroy Christianity. He thought it was a wicked sect that was going to lead Judaism into apostasy. That's what he was doing. I mean, the worst thing you could possibly do is what he, he calls himself the chief of sinners. Now, he gets converted. Do you know he could be hung up with guilt for the rest of his life? S- sitting with the counselor, right, and just wanting to go nowhere, just saying, I, I messed up, there's nowhere to go. There's no hope. I- I've got n- nothing to look to. But now what is now that he's repented of those past sins and he's been forgiven, he turns the past, his wicked failure, and he sees now God's purpose even in his sin in the past, and now he's going to use it to glorify Christ and to invite people to the gospel. Look at verse 15. So here's what he does with his messed up past. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, number one. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, the worst sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Now do you see, after Paul has repented of his wicked life, does he now see two purposes of God in his past wickedness? Do You see, He look, he's now, he's repented of it. He sees two massive God-glorifying purposes for his killing Christians. God had a purpose for Paul killing Christians. Yes, here are the two, number one, so that God could show his unlimited patience so that no one could ever say, I'm too bad to be saved. The, the guy who wrote more books in the New Testament than anyone else made a job of killing Christians. So if you think you're too bad for Jesus, Paul was too bad for Jesus, if anyone could be, but Paul was saved. Okay, so number one, it's to show God's patience and his ability to forgive anyone no matter what they've done. And number two, was to glorify God for forgiving Paul for all his past sin. So did God have a purpose for Paul's wicked past? Yes, it was to show his patience and the glory of his forgiveness of the chief of sinners. So that's not an excuse to sin. But once I've repented of sin, I know that God has a purpose even for my past failure. He's going to work it for my good and for his glory. And in Paul's case, it's a pretty dramatic example of that. Yeah, which leads us to that third one, that we
1: can always forgive others and should and have to. And here's the great thing. I'm thinking about in marriages. We sin against each other. Amy and I will be married 25 years on Tuesday, Lord willing. Oh, man. Yeah, I know, man. And that, I think about (laughs) her just trust in this. 25 years ago, she was never getting married to me without a firm grasp. And boy, she has a firm grasp (laughs) on God's sovereignty. Knowing my sinful nature and what she's getting into and then the physical mess. That she's coming into with just marrying a quadriplegic and a, just a mess in general. <laughs> and she's got and has held on to for 25 years this thought that as much, because in every marriage, am I not right? We sin against each other every year. I've never loved Amy perfectly in any of these 25 years. God's called me to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I love her deeply but I never love her perfectly. But how can she forgive day in and day out and day in and day out when I don't love her perfectly is because she knows God's sovereign, God's uh, um, desire in marriage is to show people the gospel, right? To show people that um, the husband is to love the wife as Christ loved the church. The, The wife is to submit and respect the husband, and support the husband through that. There's different roles there. But secondly, God's design for marriage is to sanctify us. It Does marriage make us happy? Absolutely it does. But way more importantly, it makes us holy. And so I think this in marriage is just so, so good to remember, no, God is going to use even all the sin that would happen against each other. So that's why Forgiveness is not optional for the believer. Forgiveness has to be continual in the way we forgive each other and complete. It
2: goes back to the all things, doesn't it, Jerry? Yeah, it
1: does. And to think that that all things, Papa, is not just the good, good
2: things. Right, but the
1: sinful things as well. And so I really think who of us doesn't have a hard time forgiving somebody? I think all of us have people sinning against us continually right? But we've got to say, no, God's using this. This is really in the long run good for me in that it's going to make me more like Christ. And so, you got to say, okay, do I want to be just, um, do I want to be godly or just want to be comfortable? If I just want to be comfortable, then this where you're barking up the whole wrong tree. If you want to be godly, though, then he who began a good work will carry it on to completion and he will use the discipline. Papa, I know we're out of time. Could you share from Hebrews 12? I know you love this topic, learned so much from you on this topic, that God disciplines those who he loves through this, in this And it's manner. kind of
2: scary because he says, if you're not disciplined, maybe you're, you're not one of my sheep. Uh, look, at, look at how he disciplined countries, how he disciplined Israel with Assyria and Babylonia and and countless other um, situations in scripture. So yes, individually. And so we need to be, uh, it is for discipline that you have to endure. What verse are you, Freddie? Oh, I'm sorry, seven, uh, 12, seven. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Six, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son, whom he receives, that's yeah, look 100%. At
1: and 11, Papa.
2: 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by, I highlighted that word, trained. It's it's the training. Why do you discipline your children to train them not to run out in the street? Mm-hmm. And 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 obviously, as you mature, your training uh, should advance as well. And and you should, in maturity, be trained by the discipline of the Lord. Yeah, and I should never sin against Amy
1: because of that. Right. But God has used my sin against her to train her to be more godly, and, vi- and vice versa. And all for all of us. In, in marriage and in every relationship. How freeing, how freeing is this? We don't ever have to hold anything against anybody because God's using us for good. I just think that's that's the best. That really frees us to go to go get them this week.
0: Let me summarize that last point. And we'll pray. So we never, ever, ever use God's sovereignty over evil to excuse our own evil. That is to abuse a doctrine, okay? But we do use the doctrine, we, we think about it in particular when we are sinned against, because Joseph says, you meant it for evil, and the only way I can forgive you is because I know God meant it for good. And that the, the sovereignty over people sinning against me is the is the power we have, knowing God has a good purpose, is the power we have to forgive those who, who sin against us no matter what it looks like. Can you close us in prayer, Papa?
2: Absolutely. Father God, um, this has been an awesome afternoon just uh to talk about you, to talk about your will. Uh, we only, uh, you know, Spro quip one time that, you know, we spend too much time worrying about uh, trying to discern your secret will and, and all that type thing. But uh, I, I think once you, once you grapple with this and once you understand it, you'll see that, uh, as Isaiah says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. In my thoughts uh than your thoughts and and lord thank you for how you use uh our sinfulness uh and 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 as a as a tutor almost sometimes uh for your glory and, and 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 paul's a good example a poster child for that and he even says that and breaks out in, in doxology So thank you for this afternoon, and and I pray that we continue this uh, discussion next week on uh, God's sovereignty over sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.